The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Tonight, this is a Tales from the Curbside episode where we go through in a more rapid fire fashion, some of our favorite pearls from recent episodes on high blood pressure, sarcoidosis, and seizures. Paul, before we get into the topic, can you tell the audience, what is it that we generally do on this show? (laughs) Shall we just sort of mess around for an hour and a half? But we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. Generally, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you alluded to, uh, the Tales from the Curbside series is where we warmly reflect back on a couple of episodes that happened recently and, and talk about our favorite pearls. So we speak on behalf of the experts who have transmitted knowledge to us and you, the listener, and try to condense it down into usable pearls. So I think we're going to start, if I'm not mistaken, with the update on hypertension. So Matt, why don't you tell us who we talked to and, and lead us off with what we talked about. Okay, Paul. So I think I've figured out high blood pressure, okay? Oh, great. We're um, done. <laughs> there's, there's all these conflicting guidelines. There's all these targets and all this stuff. But in general, I think if you get their blood pressure under 140 systolic, you're doing pretty good. That's acceptable. If you get their blood pressure under 130 and you can do so pretty easily, you're doing really well. So that's that's what I would call ideal. And and where I'm getting this from is from the the International Society for Hypertension Guidelines. They they split all their recommendations into acceptable and ideal. And why did they do that? I think they wanted to make it easy. It's an international guideline and not all countries, not all patients have the same resources. Not all patients are willing to take the same number of meds. So I think it's really easy if you kind of put it that way to patients and when you're thinking about should I add a second med, should I escalate a dose? Well, if their blood pressure is under 140, it's acceptable, and you're not super worried about this patient's risk, then maybe you don't have to push it down below 130. You know, that's not for all patients. And so so that's how I've begun to think about it now, Paul. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, the framing of the guidelines is almost a way to make us feel better about ourselves. Like, well, it's not ideal, but it's acceptable. Like, I think this is more <laughs> for doctors than it is for patients, but that's that's okay. We could use the help right now. It's a stressful time for all of us, I think. It, it is. It is. And Paul, I'm I'm forgetting the format of this show. I, I went out of order. This, of course, was number 254 with Dr. Juan Penn Vong Padanasan, and it was produced by Deb Gorth with graphic by Edison Jang. Paul, what was your top pearl from this one? Yeah, it's it's hard. It's a topic I love, and it's hard for me to pick uh, a top pearl. I sort of more general concepts that I, I like discussing and sort of like to be reminded of. So I, I think. In terms of management, Dr. Von Padden-Nassen made the point that we are going to be relying more on home blood pressure measurements, uh, especially in this age of telehealth and as it's being used more frequently. And she made the point that home blood pressure readings and your clinic blood pressure readings are not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. And in fact, your blood pressure readings tend to be a little bit lower at home. And so that they diverge the higher your blood pressure gets. So a blood pressure reading of 130 over 80 at home is probably pretty close to that in the clinic. But as the numbers get higher from the home readings, that equates to an even higher reading in the clinic. And there's actually a really nice chart in the ACC guidelines to, to help you quantify that a little bit more specifically. And then she also, we talked a lot about the categories of hypertension, which I think are always worth revisiting. We talked about sustained hypertension where your blood pressure is high at home, your blood pressure is high in the office. That one's easy. You, you treat that and you either shoot for acceptable or you can even go ideal if you're feeling <laughs> sassy. 
There's also normo tension. You feel great about that. If blood pressure is okay at home. It's it's okay in the office. Again, uh, high fives all around. The two categories that merit a little bit more careful consideration is the white coat hypertension, which again, we all know about, but so you're high blood pressure in the office and normal blood pressures at home. And I, I think historically that was categorized as benign or nothing to really worry about. And we didn't do much with it, but the more the evidence is mounting up that it seems like that's not entirely benign and that actually confers some cardiovascular risk. And then the last category is the one that I always like to be reminded of just because it does definitely confer some cardiovascular risk is this idea of mass hypertension where in the office, your blood pressure is fine. And then you go home and you have high blood pressure readings, which can suggest a lot of things. I think Stuart in the past has suggested that that might reply like you just have higher sympathetic tone and increased stress, you know, but the long and the short of it is it's not a benign condition and that merits actually a little bit more aggressive treatment. So don't forget about mask hypertension as you're thinking about the different broad categories. And for practical purposes, we did spend a lot of time talking about high blood pressure and how she measures it. So typically she'll tell patients, she sends them to this validatebp.org. It's a website that she's been involved with, with some other cardiologists talking about which blood pressure cuffs that people can use at home are validated. So that's an easy site you can send your patients to and they can get the model numbers there. But she tells them to take two readings a day, you know, morning and evening readings for seven days. And usually she'll have them take more than one reading in the morning and average them together. The same thing in the evening. And so that's one way you can manage blood pressure. The other thing we talked about is the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor, which if you remember, Juan Penn said she actually has done it herself because she wanted oh, to know what she exist. was putting <laughs> patients through. It does, Paul, it does exist. Uh, in, in other cash slack hospitals where I've worked, it, it is something you can get. Usually it's either going to be a nephrology, like hypertension clinic or a cardiology clinic that can get it done for you. But I think some primary care offices might be set up for this as well. Sure. I would hope so. So that, that can kind of help you get a sense of the person's blood pressure. And I think it's all about like individualizing the risk, talking to a patient about their values, like how much they want to lower their risk, whether or not you're going to put this person on blood pressure medication. But definitely watch these people really closely with mass hypertension or white coat hypertension and think about getting some of these more time points so you can really suss out what's happening. Yeah, that's all right. That's great. And I, you mentioned sort of individualized care and sort of taking inpatient risks into consideration. So we also talked a little bit about spironolactone uh, as well. So it's, it's, I think we talked uh, offline a little bit about how that's at rapidly become our, our preferred sort of fourth line agent. So after you kind of go through the usual suspects of calcium channel blockades and thiazides and ACE or ARB uh, inhibition, that, that tends to be sort of our next line for resistant hypertension or for just harder to treat hypertension. But one of the points that she raised is that Something that we know, but it's just good to discuss, is that you should also counsel, particularly your male patients, on possible adverse side effects. So gynecomastia, which we, we've all heard about, but I think sometimes forget a little bit of that, that, that anticipatory guidance and you know, asking patients explicitly who are on spironolactone, are you having breast tenderness? Because it may not be volunteered. And then there's also potential sexual side effects in terms of decreased libido and erectile dysfunction that you should also counsel about before you start the medication, but then also ask about after you start the right. medication because they tend to be sensitive and they may not necessarily be volunteered by the patient. Yeah. It reminds me about like beta blockers. I know we're used to seeing tons of men on them, but you know, younger men don't, don't tend to like those and don't tend to tolerate them as well um, right. as some of our older patients that, that were uh, taken care of as internists. So we really talked about medications as well. And the combination pills we spent a fair amount of time talking about those. And what struck me, it's kind of inspired me to use more combo pills in my practice as well. And she mentioned how Kaiser does this thing where typically they'll have patients on like the lisinopril, HCTZ 20-25, 
And if the person's blood pressure is, you know, borderline high, she'll put them on half a pill. If it's high, one pill. And if it's really high, two pills a day. So it's it's one medicine. It's pretty easy to titrate. And of course, there's all sorts of things, potassium, kidney injury, you know, angioedema, things like that that might happen that might derail <laughs> this plan. But it is it, it is a combo pill that's on the $4 formulary. And that's, you know, that's a really something that you should think about. And I, I think combo pills in general are something that just makes it easier for patients. And it works better to have two agents of different mechanisms than like one agent at a full dose. Right, right. Because your effect is not linear. It's not, you don't get double the effect with double the dose of right. a single agent therapy. And it's, you can't, I struggle with titration of the combination medications, but for a lot of patients, you can't overstate the importance of pill burden yeah. and being mindful of that too. So it really is, it's, it's sort of weighing the patient preferences going back to our, I guess, our original point of individualizing care. Yeah. And the, the International Society for Hypertension Guidelines, they recommend the ACE inhibitor calcium channel blocker combo, which is a great medicine, but it is a little bit more expensive in the United States. So think about that, price it out for your patient before you you put put them on that one because it's I don't think it's a four dollar med like the the previous one. Yeah, unfortunately, my I, my preference tends to be, and this is not even expert opinion. This is just my own personal practice: is ARBs over ACEs if I if I can manage it. But unfortunately, there's just not a whole lot of good combo ARB formulations that are covered on four dollar formularies. Like there's just there's not a whole lot of great options out there. So unfortunately, that's not as available to us as say the ACE calcium channel blocker uh, formulations. All right, Paul. So next up is an episode number two fifty six on sarcoidosis with doctors Boltax and Sholand. This was again produced by Deb Gorth with again graphic by Edison Jang. Paul, what was your top pick from this one? Again, broad. So just a chance for me to talk entirely too much, but I, I appreciated <laughs> sort of the discussion of how to make the initial diagnosis, or at least when to suspect it, because I I feel like you know we we talked a little bit about how it's very common to inherit a patient or meet someone who has this anecdotal diagnosis of sarcoidosis and no one knows where it came from and they're not treated for it and their chest x-rays look fine. You're like, I don't, I don't, and you can't get it off the chart no matter how hard you try. But the other side of that is when should you start thinking about that if you, if you don't inherit a patient with a mysterious sarcoid diagnosis in their problem list? And it oftentimes it's picked up on asymptomatic patients who get chest imaging for, for some other reason. And you see the bilateral hyalur lymphadenopathy classically and you think, well, that I should probably do something about that. But then in terms of symptoms that present, anyone who's presenting to you with chronic dyspnea that is not otherwise explained, it should be somewhere on your differential. And then also patients who have these repeated courses of antibiotic therapy for finger quotes, pneumonia, which may or not be pneumonia, they seem to have gone through multiple treatments for that. It should start to prompt you to think, is there something else that I'm dealing with here? And is that something else sarcoidosis? And we talked about what your initial workup might be if you suspect it. Um, and I, you know, the other point that they made, which I think is just worth mentioning because I, I, at least in my training, it was mentioned before is ACE levels. You don't need to check those. They're, they're not all that helpful, even though you'll may, you may hear about them in relation to sarcoidosis. We're on your board exams, but <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I think they're trying to get a, I, I think the message is out now. I think, a, a, you know, ACE levels, it's one of those fun things to, to, to suggest, um, yeah, sarcastically sure. <laughs> when you're when you're working a patient up, especially yep. if you don't stings and pancreatitis and ACE levels exactly. And sarcoid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just love the conversation. You mentioned it already, Paul, but just the, it just still cracks me up every time I think about the phantom diagnosis. Of, I I literally saw one yesterday. It was a phantom diagnosis of sarcoidosis in the patient's chart. I fairly certain this patient did not have sarcoid and uh, sarcoidosis, and you know I didn't notice it until after they left. But they were they were doing just oh. fine. So I'll have to I'll have to <laughs> dig into that one next time. Sure. 
Um, but if you do think someone has sarcoidosis, you really have to do a full history and full exam. Dr. Boltax recommended that he, uh, he mentioned that he has a template that he goes through and Edison actually made uh, a graphic that kind of goes through the things that he asked about on his template. So you ask about eye symptoms like uveitis, cardiac symptoms, palpitations were one of the things, which not really something like palpitations and syncope. I don't jump to sarcoid, but that is something that I will now uh, be thinking about. And skin symptoms, enodosum, neuropsych symptoms, and then obviously bone symptoms with this. Uh, they love to test about this on board. Someone with hypercalcemia, you want to check a 125 OH vitamin D and a 25 OH vitamin D. So think about that. And then once someone's on treatment, you got to think about the bones, which we'll, which we'll talk about. So yeah, just some like basic stuff that we can do in primary care. I think you can get them an eye exam, get them an EKG. You can do the basic chest X-ray and some pulmonary function testing, probably full PFTs on this person, and then uh, you know check out their bones. But I think some of the more advanced testing probably can be deferred to the specialists like cardiac MRI or full body PET scanning. Paul, do you ever order high-res CTs on, on patients? I'm actually doing it more frequently, uh, thanks to a couple of our episodes, this being one of them, but also right. our, our ILD episode with Dr. Um, Aaron Oreski in the past was one where I just, I think more about it now as I think more of, as these diagnoses spring more commonly yeah. to mind, because there's no point in referring them to pulmonology to order the imaging that they would order anyway. Like you right. can get them armed with that information if you're going to be making that referral. So you, you can, you can help them out a little bit. Anything else, Paul, that really struck you from this episode? I mean, we, we, we really went into everything on, on this one. Yeah, I, I, the the conversation about treatment I appreciated. You know, I think we we probably agree that I'm not going to be managing the the treatment of the patient's sarcoidosis, but I will probably be managing the, the potential side effects and the sequelae of it um, much of the time. And so, like, I'm not going to be titrating steroids probably or trying the steroid modifying medications. But you should be aware, uh, as we all are, of of the potential downsides of being on chronic steroids, as these patients often are. So, that, you know, one of the things that I am always grateful to be reminded of is pneumocystis pneumonia prophylaxis. So if someone is on chronic steroids at a higher dose, so higher than 30 milligrams per day for longer than four weeks, consider something like trimethoprim-methoxazole for um, pneumocystis pneumonia prophylaxis. And then also if they're on chronic steroids, just being super mindful of bone health. So in addition to the laboratory testing you're talking about, being aggressive with your DEXA scans and just making sure that you're not missing uh, osteopenia or osteoporosis as a result of the chronic steroid use too. And the typical steroid starting dose is a big range. It was something like 20 to 40 milligrams is what they quoted <laughs> right. us. And it's tapered over months. So probably a lot of patients might meet that 30 milligrams for more than a month, and they might just temporarily be on like pneumocystis prophylaxis. And then tapering it, it's probably not going to be primarily managed by you, but it's a slow taper. And they try to get the patient under 10 milligrams a day under five milligrams or less a day, even better. And if they can't get them down to those lower doses of steroids, then, or if they can't get the, some, in some cases they get them off the steroids altogether, it just depends on the course of the, of the disease, then uh, the patient get, might get thrown on an immunomodulator, something like a methotrexate. And Dr. Boltex made the point that he had actually created like a multidisciplinary team uh, for treating sarcoidosis, which had pharmacists. We, we talked about pulmonary hypertension. You know, they have, they have a specialist, our friend, Dr. Ryan, they send people to for that. So it is a, it, it is a big effort. Uh, and the primary care doctor is, can really, our role can really be to get the initial testing and then look out for some of the side effects of the treatments that these people are on. Paul, I think it's time to move on to our third and final topic for this episode, which was 
everybody's favorite. This was episode number 257, Seizure Basics with Dr. Sarah DeWitt. This was produced by Beth Garbs Garbatelli, and I believe yourself, Paul, with infographics by Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Paul, start us off. What is your what was your favorite pearl from this one? Yeah, this this was a, I mean this this whole episode was the Beth Garbs Garbatelli joint. But in any case, I my had a couple of favorite parts. I, I think a lot of the times um, with seizure disorder, especially if a patient's already followed by neurology, that kind of tends to be the plan. Especially when I'm when I'm talking to residents in clinic, like problem number seventeen, seizure disorder follows with neuro, <laughs> and like that's kind of and then we move one from there. So this was a nice way to reframe it, remind me that I have an active part in these patients' care. But I think even before we get into that part, which I, I, I think we're planning on discussing, just what happens if you happen to come across someone who's having a seizure? So like if someone's having a, a witness seizure, what kind of things should you do for that? Because it's- Paul, you know I'm going to take my belt off <laughs> yeah. and put it in the patient's mouth. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> With your fingers very aggressively, try to at least get two or three in there. It's really, it's and everything, I mean, I guess you could start anti-seizure medications, but really- um, so Paul, what, mouth and some fingers. <laughs> I, I'm sorry for derailing you. You were about to make, yeah. what are, what are the actual things you should do? If, if it's like a rapid response, you're either in the hospital or in probably not in the hospital, right. you're just in a public place and someone's having a seizure. What would you do? Well, right. So the idea of putting something in the patient's mouth is actually a, an understandably misguided attempt at maintaining patient safety, which is really your priority. Yeah. So there's always this idea, like what if the patient bites their tongue, um, which will happen, but you don't have to stick anything in your mouth. Like that's, that's the least of their problems at the time. So the things that you're trying to do is your fundamentals, your ABCs. So Dr. DeWitt made the point that, first of all, check your own pulse, make sure that you're in a calm place to actually manage what is this acute event that's going on, and then maintain patient safety. So make sure their airway's okay, that their secretions are at least coming out of their mouth ideally, that they're breathing, that they're not in imminent circulatory collapse, there's not something else going on there. And then keeping them in a place where they're not going to do damage to themselves. So if you can turn them on their side and keep their head away from hard objects or rocks or anything like that, and just stay with them and keep them from getting up as they become post-dictal and just really maintaining the patient's safety initially. And then she also made some other points that we, we've talked about before, Matt, in terms of things that I had not thought of, and I'm not sure I would have the presence of mind to think of, and things like timing the seizure. Right. Because um, in the moment, it, it may feel like it's going on much longer than it actually has. And then even videoing the, taking video of the seizure if you can, and you think of it, because that can be really helpful for a neurologist who will do a subsequent evaluation. I I would not have had the presence of mind to think of those things, but I think knowing them ahead of time, I would be more likely to to be doing that. So yeah, timing it, taking a video, I love those pearls. And then of course, just keeping them away from heavy or harmful objects, not heavy objects, maybe heavy objects. <laughs> Paul, the other thing that we talked about that I really liked was just the general seizure precautions. I think this is kind of follows naturally. So when you're in primary care, it's not uncommon, Paul, where I'll get some money, they've been in the hospital and they were just recently diagnosed with their first seizure and they're not, it was a blur and they're not really clear on everything. And I think just telling them like, you know, what they can do to be safe. So for me, it was like, okay, obviously make sure that they're on a driving restriction for three to six months, depending on the state that you live in. And then things I hadn't thought about as much as like counseling them about when they're around heights, like they shouldn't be on the roof of their house or climbing ladders. Ladders. Yeah. I, yeah it never even occurred to me. And then, and then bodies of water. So, you know, if they're in a swimming pool, they have to be with other people and they should take showers, not baths, just simple stuff like that, that could potentially save lives. And probably the most morbid one, Paul, had you ever heard of these epilepsy pillows before? No, I was blissfully unaware of this whole concept until we actually, until this episode. Yeah. And, and, in the post-production, when I was looking them up, the, the evidence for them is still, I think, evolving as to whether or not they, they work. But 
what I think the bigger point is the fact that the reason someone thought to make these is because patients with epilepsy sometimes die in their sleep because they're they're I guess they're on their their face down having a seizure and they they're asphyxiating, which is why people thought to make these pillows, which I guess like kind of let the air are meant to let the air flow through. They're more of like a mesh type material. So I think just you know knowing that that's something patients need to be aware of, their partners need to be aware of that they can have seizures when they're sleeping. And then, Paul, what can they do? What are the triggers? Do you have any favorite triggers that you talk to patients about? I, I feel like sleep comes up over and over again. So in terms of triggers to be cognizant of, sleep deprivation is a big one. Stress can do it. Alcohol is one to counsel patients on. There is just a whole passel of medications. Some of our old favorites, things like tramadol or uh, bupropion are classic ones. But then even some some antibiotics, I think, can be associated with, with triggers as well. So just being mindful of things that can potentially... Uh, trigger seizures is a good anticipatory discussion to have. Well, Paul, so in the primary care, in that first primary care visit or in subsequent primary care visits, she also told us some things that we need to look out for. Um, Usually I'm not the one ordering the meds myself. Uh, Maybe I'll be giving them refills, but she told us about how to follow the meds and how to follow for side effects. So what were your favorite points from that section? Yeah. In terms of it's, we, we, we've talked about this, um, before, I, I think oftentimes, especially if a patient's doing well, they may not be following with neurology as closely. And so the, the monitoring of the medications will fall to you. But then also things like, I think she mentioned at, at least yearly, she being Dr. DeWitt, things like a CBC and, and liver function are worth testing for most um, anti-epileptic medications. And then also bone health is often affected, especially with the anti-epileptic drugs that are cytochrome P450 inducers. So being mindful of checking vitamin D levels, repleting appropriately, and then also being a little bit more aggressive with DEXA scans and and making sure bone health is intact for someone who's on chronic anti-epileptic drugs. And something that I feel a little more empowered to do now too, uh, because I had a couple patients there, I was refilling their meds and they weren't frequently seeing neurology, is just at least once a year checking levels of their anti-epileptic drugs, just making sure they're not like wildly out of range uh, is something else that I think is recommended as well. If not, in some cases, just to check if they're actually taking them or not, I guess right. would be another another way that that would be helpful. And then, Paul, I know this is a topic near and dear to both of our uh, our hearts. Is the you know mood disorders, behavioral health issues in patients with seizures? Which I had no idea about. Yeah, no, speak on it. I, I will. Well, I'll let you tell us about it. I mean, I don't remember the exact figure, so maybe you have the statistics for me. But she basically said you, 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 there is a very high prevalence of comorbid psychiatric disorders in patients who who have seizures, which is not really something I, I've probably seen it now that I'm thinking back, but I it wasn't really something that I was aware of. Yeah, it's I think the number that was cited, if I'm not mistaken, was anywhere between 20 and 50% of patients with seizure disorder have comorbid mood disorder, either depression or anxiety, and a, and a much higher risk of suicidality as well, much more likely to die from suicide than patients without seizure disorder. So I think that was a really, this is a really great empowering episode, but also with some sobering facts that I think um, just reminded me to do good primary care and make sure that I'm asking and doing my screening for depression and, and anxiety being especially diligent in this patient population who, who seem particularly prone to it. Yeah. And, you know, she uh, she did tell us some tools and tricks that she uses. She mentioned this epipic.org, which is a, a website that you can go to. It's a free website. You can plug in the patient's information about their seizures, what kind of seizures you think they have, and uh, they'll actually say what kind of seizures they think it is and what sort of medications and what sort of starting doses, and you can click through the meds and it tells you a little bit of the counseling that might go along with those medications. 
which I thought was really useful. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to be the one starting, but it is helpful to kind of look at that and see, kind of get an idea of how a neurologist would think about your patient with seizure, or if you're if you're working in the hospital and someone's coming in with a first time seizure kind of getting inside the head of the specialists and see what they're doing there. So uh, we can, of course, link to that in the show notes. Paul, before we wrap up this episode, did you have any other uh, pearls on seizure that you wanted to to bring up before we get to the outro? No, actually, I, I, I think that the website actually um, was something I, I was hoping that you were going to mention because it really does seem, like you said, not so much as a management tool for me, the, the internist, but as an educational tool as a way to kind of review what counseling goes into. I, 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 like you said, I think that's a, a very useful one. And, and maybe the place to end with on the topic on seizures, this was a plug that Dr. DeWitt, she mentioned that be aggressive about trying to get your patients to an epileptologist, especially if they're uncontrolled, because there are surgical procedures that can be done. There are more advanced things. And she said it takes patients on average like 10 years or more to get to a surgery to cure their seizures. And right. they can actually really shave that time down if they're being followed aggressively by someone who's really trained in epilepsy. So don't be shy about referring your patients and, uh, and one final thing is that like, it's not always easy. We spend a lot of time talking about it. It's not always easy to tell if someone has seizures uh, or not, right. even if you're, even if you are uh, a neurologist. So everyone can sleep better at night knowing that <laughs> you're not just the dumb <laughs> internist that can't figure out if the person has syncope seizures, uh, you know, non-epileptic seizures. It's, it's not always easy and uh, it, it can be pretty murky. Right. Cause seizures don't also necessarily pretend, present Classically, and then there's also all kinds of things, specifically like cardiac and arrhythmias and that kind of thing that can actually present that look an awful lot like seizures. So it's just the waters are murky. All right. This episode is not going to be eligible for CME, but we do have each of these three individual episodes was eligible for CME through our partner VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. So you can go there and check it out. And now, Paul, let's get to the outro. Oh, it's my favorite part. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> it's, it's always a question with you. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, please sign up for your mailing list uh, to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode us and to our social media team beth garbs garbatelli on twitter mad dog maddie morgan on instagram tima karganov is on our website mj allen and jeff carter are on the transcription team chris the chew man chew is on facebook until next time i've been dr matthew frank Watto. and as always we should thank the great Stuart brigham who we thank in absentia for composing our theme music for the episode uh in honor of Stuart, i wandered off complaining about my knee and I'm now back on camera. <laughs> um, and I should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.